0: From St. Louis Public Radio, this is Politically Speaking.
1: As the 2021 legislative session of the Missouri General Assembly hits the home stretch, Republicans like Senator Paul Wheland are ready to tackle big issues that could shape the state for years to come. The Jefferson County Republican joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about some of his big legislative battles and the decision of the Republican-led legislature not to fund Medicaid expansion. Let's hit the music.
0: This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people.
1: I've tried to bring that same aggressive
0: iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a motto for the state. We put Missourians first.
1: You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values.
0: After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make.
1: And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum, joining me in person in his office in high ridge missouri yep
0: senator paul wheelan
1: we are on location in missouri's scenic and beautiful 22nd senatorial district which you've represented since 2014. that's correct yeah amazingly because i remember the first battle of for jeff co very well you will be termed out of the senate after next year, yeah, last year, my, next
0: year, my last year. That's, where yeah. where
1: does the time go? It flies by, doesn't it? Yeah. And just remind our listeners the boundaries of your district. It's all in Jefferson County, but it's not all of Jefferson right. County.
0: Right. It's pretty much um, if you know Jefferson County, it's the northern two thirds uh, down to about where the hospital in Saint Pius is, and then if you draw a line from there across the county, that's about. How far south do we go? It includes
1: the Blue Owl,
0: right? It, yeah, but is in my district, yes. Yeah, it absolutely. is one of yeah.
1: some of the best pies in the state of Missouri. But yeah. uh, we're not here to talk about pies. We're here to talk about what's going on in the Missouri legislature. As I said before I pressed record, you've been at the center of some pretty acrimonious fights in the Missouri Senate. It's not really something that you've been used to over the last few years. You seem to be more of a consensus builder than a bomb thrower. Um, let's talk about FRA, which is Federal yeah. Reimbursement Allowance. This yeah. is the tax that hospitals put on themselves to pay for Medicaid. You put an amendment on there, or sought to put an amendment on there, dealing with birth control. Explain what you were trying to do.
0: Okay, so um, the federal government right now in the state of Missouri um, pays for, I think, about four drugs that are abortion and drugs. And the difference, between me to me, between birth control and abortion drugs is birth control stops you From conceiving a child, abortion offense actually destroy that child's life once it's been conceived. So there are four um, particular drugs that I find morally offensive, and I don't think the state of Missouri should be paying for them. Um, it kind of ties back to back in 2010, I believe it was, when um, my wife and I filed a lawsuit against Obamacare because Obamacare mandated that we provide those drugs and have those drugs in our. health care plan, and we objected to that, and ultimately we won that lawsuit. Um, So my thinking now is I just don't want that to be part of the Medicaid program. Um, There's a lot of misinformation out there saying that we're doing away with all birth control. That's not true. Um, I'm not outlawing these drugs. I'm just saying that these things should not be paid for by the state. It's kind of the same thing every year I vote against the correction bill. I'm a pro-life guy. Um, I don't vote for the correction bill because we're funding drugs that put people to death. I don't think we should fund drugs on the front end that put people to death either. So that's my motivation and why I did it. Um, Since we've got it on there, Senator Hagman and myself have come to terms. We've come to compromise language that made us both happy. So my part of the FRA bill, I think, is not holding it up. I think we're ready to move forward. Now, Senator Onder added the second amendment, And part of his amendment undid the agreement, the compromise language that me and Senator Hegman had. And at that point in time, Senator Hegman laid the bill back over. So I would say at this point in time, I don't believe my amendment is slowing the FRA bill down. And what
1: was your, your, correct me if I'm wrong, your amendment basically said that if the feds like object to this, it goes away basically?
0: No, my amendment said that Missouri would no longer fund these drugs. Okay. now the compromise language was that anything in the bill is severable. Mm -hmm. So if a court challenge found that that portion was unconstitutional, then basically the rest of the FRA bill goes forward and it doesn't stop the funding. That was the compromise that me and Senator Hagman reached. Uh, Yeah.
1: And I think this is a really important bill because if it doesn't pass, then Missouri's not going to have a pretty important funding stream to pay for medicaid right
0: yes yeah it's close i'm, I'm not exactly i'm not on budget but i think it's close to maybe two billion dollars is tied to this particular bill so we need to get it passed yeah what
1: has been the governor parson administration's reaction to this i can't imagine they're super pleased that this isn't going through
0: they haven't reached out to me negatively or positively um which i you know i doesn't bother me either way. I think that Governor Parsons, because he was a senator, he understands that you don't really have to panic on anything until it gets everything gets through the process. Because as things go through um, the Senate, things get added, things get taken off, and until you get the finished product, there's not a whole lot of time to panic. Um, his office didn't reach out to me and ask me not to do it, didn't reach out and encourage me to do it. As far as I know, they I, I don't know where he's at on the issue.
1: So I understand that you're a very devout Catholic. We've talked mm-hmm. on the show before right. about how, mm-hmm. how you're very much opposed to abortion rights and the death penalty. Right. And I also imagine that the, the reason you're opposed to these certain birth control drugs relates to your Catholic faith.
0: They're uh, abortion fence. But okay, yes, yes. yes. Okay. I wanted to okay. just make, <laughs> make that clear.
1: Like you <laughs> right. it, you have a moral objection. There's
0: to a moral drugs. objection to me to, to the state paying to destroy human life.
1: Okay, yes. now. There could be other people that don't share that view and are hearing that, and you're like, and they're like, you're trying to impose your view on me who doesn't agree with it. And these drugs could be very useful to me, but I need to be on Medicaid to pay for it. And they may see you as th- this is completely unreasonable. How would you respond to that?
0: Well, I think that Missouri is a pro-life state. I think um, you can tell by the laws that we've passed that Missouri is a state that respects life. And I see this as a policy decision for the state of Missouri to say, are we, are our taxpayers going to fund a drug that destroys human life? And I think by the vote, I think it was 20 to, I forget what the vote was, but it was overwhelmingly the Senate voted that, yes, this is a good policy decision. Um, Is it, we're imposing our, we impose our will on everybody. You could say, well, I want to drive 150 miles an hour down the highway. Is the state legislature imposing this will on you? Yes, we are. We're saying we don't think it's a good policy in the state of Missouri to drive 150 miles an hour. So it's a policy question. Do
1: you think that the Biden administration is going to react favorably to this? I could see them basically saying, no, you're not doing this, and we're going to cut off Medicaid funding if you don't reverse this.
0: Well, right now there's nothing, and I've gotten a legal opinion on this, there is nothing in the federal statutes that require the state of Missouri to pay for these abortion drugs. In fact, all the federal law says is that your Medicaid program must have a family planning program of it, which we do. It doesn't say you must fund these particular drugs. In theory, a state, and I'm advocating this, a state could say we're only going to have one birth control medication available to on our Medicaid program, and that's that They'll that be fine with the federal government. So the federal government, the current laws don't say that we have to do it. Now, this is where it gets kind of trickier if we were to expand Medicaid the the Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act requires that states that expand Medicaid must provide every FDA approved device so for years while a lot of my colleagues always have opposed Medicaid expansion because of the fiscal problems they have seen coming with it I also had a moral concern with it in that once we expand Medicaid then we are saying more or less we must provide these drugs so um, but current the current Medicaid program, states are left up to the states can decide what drugs they're going to supply and what drugs they're not going to supply. Um, it's not mandated.
1: Do you think that if Missouri does expand Medicaid, which is a topic we're going to talk about in right. the second mm-hmm. half of the show, mm-hmm. is it possible Missouri could negotiate with the feds to not include those drugs? I mean I, I, I did just ask right, you right, about that right. so, and I, I don't know if that would be successful because you have a democratic administration, but right. there have been other, States that have expanded Medicaid that were able to work out specific arrangements right. for the states, basically. So
0: there again, my 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 legal opinion that I got back on this um, said that if we expanded Medicaid and we had my amendment still attached to the legislation, it was the law of the state of Missouri. The federal government could come and say to us, hey, Missouri, we think you're out of compliance. But there's a due process. They would have to have a hearing. They'd have to have public meetings. They would have us make our case. They would make their case. And then at the end of the day, they could decide whether or not we're out of compliance. Now, most cases like that, it's not a the sky is falling and all of a sudden you guys don't get $2 billion. What happens is they say, okay, Missouri, and this might be after three years of hearings and discussion, they may say, we think you're out of compliance. You have six months to be in compliance or we're going to sanction you mm-hmm. at that point in time we can always remove the language right so it's not something you know a lot of times on the floor they say oh if you put this amendment on it's gonna kill you know that's not that's just scare tactics the reality is there's a due process and all this stuff
1: let's move on to another issue where you were kind of in the thick of it and that was the uh, nomination of Todd Graves to the board of curators now at we're recording this on April 30th okay. he is on the board of curators right. like mm-hmm. this is a kind of a past issue right but I think you raised some objections to kind of the timeline to where right. he uh, got on to the board. And I think you had specific objections to him personally. What were, what were kind of your. your what well, was kind of your read of the situation? So,
0: so, my, I guess, heartburn with that whole situation was um, I'm on the gubernatorial appointments committee. Um, I take the work I do in Jefferson City very seriously. And we're 98% of the nominees that come to us. Uh, You look at them, and you can Google their name, and you can very quickly find out that there's nothing controversial about them, and we're very grateful that we have people willing to serve on these boards, okay? On this particular nominee's case, there was, I could not get to the end of the Google stories about this person, and there was a lot of questions I had. So the first thing I did was I had requested that we wait a few weeks, give me time to get some answers before we went to a committee hearing. That That request was denied, so the committee hearing was held quicker than I would have appreciated it being held. And then at the end of the committee meeting, there was a call to vote that nominee out of committee, which I would have, there again, requested more time, but that was done. And then we brought that up, that nomination up. It just seemed like it was really fast-tracked, and um, I probably have more issues with the process of how it was done and the fact that as a member of that committee, I did not get my questions answered and it was rushed through, then I actually have any personal animus against Mr. Graves.
1: What were some of your questions that you wanted answered
0: though? Well, the question, one of the questions that was never answered, um, and Mr. Graves told me in committee that he would get me this, is while he was a member, while he was the Executive Director of the Missouri State Party, before he left he had moved close to $200,000 out of the Missouri Republican Party funds into a PAC that he had somehow someone he knew was operating um and i asked him if he had the authority to do that he said he did i asked him to show me where in the bylaws where that was at he said it was in there i couldn't find it anywhere mm-hmm. i'd asked him if there was any minutes of any board meeting that authorized him to move the funds um he couldn't provide that so that was a big question that was left unanswered um that i would have liked to have had it answer to it's still unanswered to this day, but like you said, this, this is kind of past history now. Right, but but, and I, and but I know, those are the kind of questions yeah. that didn't get answered that I thought should have been answered.
1: Now, I understand. You know. what I, that's, it, that involves like the attempt to repeal clean Missouri state legislative redistricting. So at the same time that Graves's nomination caused a lot of controversy, there's another curator controversy with David Steelman, who represents uh, a different district on the Board of Curators, and has actually been on the board, board of curators, I think, more than two years past his expired term. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's like a number of senators that like want him to stay. And I I've mm-hmm. spoken with David Steelman a lot. He was on this podcast. I think he definitely has a lot of insight into the University of Missouri system. But I could see Governor Parson's uh, perspective that he has the right to appoint somebody else if that term has expired. Well, like, absolutely. What's kind of your, what's right. kind of your thought on that whole situation? Um,
0: no, I don't. I, I don't. I I believe the Governor Parsons has every right and authority to, anytime a a, a position is expired, to replace him with someone else's. They serve at the will of the governor. I have no problem with that. Um, I do respect Mr. Steelman's service, and I think, um, unlike the legislature where we have term limits, there's a good example of where someone who's been around for a while adds value to that board, Um, however, if the governor chooses that he wants to make a move and, you know, replace him, I I don't have a problem with that. I don't have, I, so that, that, I don't have a problem with that process. And in fact, that nominee, we, I had several discussions with answered every question that I had. Um, there is no other controversy as far as I'm concerned with him. I mean, I think he'd be a great job. Um, I'm not saying he's going to be better than Mr. Steelman or worse, but he's fully qualified. He was honest and answered every question I had for him. Um, forthrightly, so um, in that case, I don't, I don't have a problem with the new. I guess Mr. Holloway, I think is his yeah. name. Yes, I don't have a problem with him well, at all.
1: Well, it is noticeable to me because when David Steelman was on this podcast in 2018, he was really effusive about Governor Parson and thought he was going to do a great job. There seems to have been a really public falling out between them. Is that kind of ringing alarm bells to you that that's happened?
0: You, you know, you. We're getting into speculation that I don't really have any personal insight onto mm-hmm. the relationship between Governor Parsons and Mr. Steelman. Um, I would say that in the political world, um, relationships ebb and flow. And I know I've had over the time that I've been involved in the legislature, I've had other fellow um, legislators that were like we were in sync and we were working together and stuff. And then the next year we were battling like, you know, cats <laughs> and dogs. And it just, it, it's an ebb and flow thing. And I don't know their, their relationship, but I could imagine like any other relation in the political world, things come and go. You know I mean?
1: We'll be talking more about governor Parsons uh, relationship with the legislature right after this break. Okay. And we're back on politically speaking with Senator Paul Wheland, a Republican, from Jefferson County, particularly Imperial, Missouri, probably the greatest town name in the entire state of Missouri, next to Knob Noster, which is, I think, number one. (laughs) Let's talk about uh, Governor Parson's relationship with the legislature. Um, You know, when he came into office, I was expecting him to have a better relationship because I don't really think you could have a worse relationship than Greitens in the legislature. Yeah, I, would, I would agree with it that, was, yes, It was so. pretty terrible. Right. Yeah, we talked about on, uh, yeah. the last time you were on the show about right. how you and him got at it because right. of a pay situation. Go listen to that. We're not rehashing right, yeah. the, the past. Um, so in the beginning, it did seem like that was the case. In 2019, there were a mm-hmm. lot of major bills passed. 2020, I'm willing to give a pass. It was an unusual session because right, yeah. of coronavirus. But this session really started off on a weird foot where the governor and speaker rob viscovo who's from jefferson county got into a really really public spat over the venue for the state of the state and it seems like that was kind of the blow up over a number of issues the two have had and now you kind of see some other things that we're going to talk about in the policy realm where the legislature and the governor don't seem to be in sync is that is the love affair over between parson and the legislature
0: you know i every i think every every legislator probably has a different relationship with the governor and um and as we were talking about earlier about how relationship ebb and flow i mean where I know earlier in the year, the speaker and the governor had issues. I think last week there was a bill signing and it was a love fest. You thought the two guys were, you know, <laughs> went to the same high school and they were best friends. Yeah. So, I mean, the relationships shift, they shift and it depends on the issues and the time. Now, um, I think that Governor Parsons is still doing a good job. I think he he's, he's communic- he communicates with the with the legislature on things that he thinks are important, and he stays away when he thinks that he needs to stay away. And I think that's the sign of a good leader because you can you can go too extreme one way. You can be a micromanager and have your office interjecting its you know, thoughts and wills on every single particular issue, or you can do the opposite, and Governor Nixon used to be like this, where you don't say a peep and then things get passed, and then you're like, why did you veto me? If you would have told me you wanted that line out, I would have did it. So there's a fine line, and I think that Governor Parsons – has found that fine line, and I would I would hazard to say that I think the majority of the legislature has a good working relationship with the governor. Um, there's always going to be those people at that point in time or whatever on the outs with you. You know, I, like I said, this is always a shifting. Um, but I think overall, I think Governor Parson's is, is probably doing a better job than any governor that I've served with as far as relating to the legislature and um, how their his relationship is with the legislature.
1: So the the Viscovo-Parson spat caught my attention for a number of reasons. First of all, some of the same people who were upset with Greitens for battling with the legislature over seemingly small issues seemed to be a little bit more taciturn over the fact that Parson was getting upset over a venue for a speech. It seemed like kind of a bad tactical move to go after the House Speaker who can kill legislation really, really easily, including things like you know, tax increase for roads or gas tax or, or any of Parsons' agenda. And you mentioned the fact that they were they were on good terms during the, the bill over, I guess, foster care. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But do you think that there's going to be any lasting impact where the speaker may start, you know, not bringing up some of Parsons' priorities because of what happened at the beginning of the year?
0: You know, that's – you're, ask, you're asking me to get in the head of the speaker. And, uh, yeah. and while we're both from the same area, Jefferson County. Because I know that every uh, every yeah.
1: Jeffco legislator yeah. can read each other's minds, right. obviously. Right, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, you know, I, I don't really know. I, I think, I will tell you this, I think that, um, I think the speaker and the governor both share a, a desire to make Missouri a better state. And they both want, and they both deep in their hearts are doing the things that they think policy-wise are best for the state. They may disagree on those, and I think at the end of the day, it's not driven. The disagreement is driven because they don't agree on the policy, and it goes above the personalities. Mm -hmm. That's what I would, I think, and I would hope that's the case. Um, But you're going to have these rifts. I mean, from time to time, and and you're going to have things where people's pride get hurt, and then a couple days, a week or so later, then they're over it and they move on to the next thing. Um, So it's not unusual that we have these these conflicts. I mean, you have a natural conflict between the House and the Senate. You have a natural conflict between the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judiciary branch. Mm -hmm. So these these are built into our Constitution, and they're there for a reason to keep things kind of in check. So Mm -hmm. I don't think there's nothing wrong with it.
1: Well, let's talk about another issue where it seems like the legislature and the governor are not quite in sync, and that's Medicaid expansion. So during that State of the State speech, which I guess became infamous because of the venue, Uh, He said very plainly that he was going to include funding for Medicaid expansion in the budget. Here's the clip right now. Like I have said many times, I will always uphold the will of the voters, and we will move forward with the expanding Medicaid coverage to approximately 275,000 Missourians. However, it is important to remember that the cost of this expansion will be significant, hundreds of millions of dollars in fact. This will have a major impact on other areas of our budget. And we must plan accordingly, which means staying vigilant in maintaining the program's integrity and protecting against fraud and waste. Uh, Flash forward to today, the Senate voted not to add funding for expansion, which means I don't think it's going to happen. I think that that issue is is over it legislatively, and we'll talk about the consequences in a moment. I mean, on, on, on the outside looking in, I know the governor wasn't like a mega fan of expansion. He opposed the ballot initiative, uh, and I understand maybe instinctually he may kind of want this result because he doesn't agree with Medicaid expansion, but he did very publicly say that it was going to happen to thousands of people that may want it is this an example where the legislature is basically saying F you to the governor? Yeah,
0: you know, I, I wouldn't say that's the case. I, I think there again, you go back to what I'd said earlier is that I think you have the majority of the Senate, that shares this thought with the majority of the house that it's not a fiscally prudent thing for us to do to expand medicaid at this time especially when the the ballot language didn't include a way to fund it so you know if, if everybody says well you gotta follow the constitution we are following the constitution the constitution says you shouldn't approve unless things are included as an appropriation in the ballot initiative how to fund it then we shouldn't fund it so we're being fiscally conservative um and I think that we believe that is the best course for the state right now. I don't think it's. I don't think anybody that voted not to expand Medicaid did it with anything, any kind of intent to harm the governor or the governor's agenda. We did it because we each each individual senator thought that was the right call to make at that time. So I think a lot of times, um, it is it is what it is, and it, all the all the I guess the conspiracy theories and oh you did this to get this guy and this and that. Yeah. A lot of that is just. Is, is conjecture and the reality is everybody votes their conscience, and this is what the result was.
1: So let's talk about what happens next because I think there's a we're going into really unknown territory here. Um, so I checked with the Department of Social Services, and they have submitted an amended plan to the federal government that I guess says that Medicaid is going to be expanded. And come July 1st, if that's followed through, Parsons administration could allow people in that expanded population to apply. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's a couple of things that could happen. If that, if that scenario happens, uh, a lot of people fear fearful that Medicaid will run out of money and hospitals and doctors will not be reimbursed for services. And the legislature is going to have to come back and expand Medicaid anyways, even if they're not forced to by the constitution. What do you make of that particular scenario?
0: I, I guess that's a scenario that's possible. Um, I think there's also scenarios to where you're going to have either proponents or opponents of Medicaid expansion going to court to try to get a ruling on whether this could or couldn't happen. Um, So there's a lot of, there's probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 different roads and paths and forks in the road that this thing can take. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think ultimately it'll probably be decided by a court. And if the court decides that the legislature must fund it, then I think that they're going beyond the bill they're 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 legislating from the courts but um um, but i think under a court order i think the legislature follows the law but it'll be appealed and tied up and stuff um i think the last time that they ordered any kind of funding was desegregation Mm -hmm. back when that's like 94 or something like that was when i first got in the legislature um but um I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of that's going to be played out yet. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. The, and, and I don't. I can't. I couldn't really predict to you what's going to happen. Well,
1: the another the scenario is that Parsons' administration doesn't allow somebody in the expanded population to get their Medicaid card, and that yeah. is the pretext for a lawsuit. And then right. they, they probably the courts decide a whether that person in the expanded population can have access to Medicaid, and b does the legislature have to pay for that right. expanded population I mean,
0: there's so many scenarios i mean you could you could allow people to enroll and then if the medicaid fund runs out then we could do a supplemental um we they could allow them to enroll and the person who enrolled under the expansion the state could say we're not paying the bill in that case the provider is going to sue the state for you know reimbursement um so you've got a lot of scenarios um that's like i said it's, it's going to be interesting to see the other thing that's kind of interesting is they've changed the um from what I understand, the Obamacare or the uh, ACA that you can enroll now and they'll pick up a lot of the subsidies. So a lot of people may enroll outside of Medicaid on regular mm-hmm. um, the regular plan, I guess, the yeah the ACA exchange. And they're getting that down to where so much of the subsidies that it probably might be easier for somebody to do that than to get on Medicaid. Right. So it's, it's a moving target. And, what's, and you don't know what's going to next things to come out of Washington either. So everything is always kind of and flux.
1: So I understood the argument in like the 2010s from Republicans that they didn't want to pay the state match to Medicaid expansion, because that would have been like 100, 150 million dollars. And you, you would have had to find that money elsewhere, which we'll talk about right. in a minute. This time, though, if Missouri expands Medicaid because of the uh, Biden American Rescue Plan, Missouri would get over a billion dollars. And hypothetically, you could use that money to pay for the state match for, you know, Cody Smith says three, four, five years. Democrats say 10 plus years. So how would that jive with the idea that this is fiscally irresponsible?
0: Well, I think the, the idea of it fiscally responsible is um, right now Medicaid takes up about 38% of our budget. Um, we expand Medicaid, it's probably gonna go to about 43% of the budget. The problem with Medicaid and these entitlement programs is, is very difficult once you give it to someone to come and take it back. And at the rate of growth, um, there will come a time, it may not be definitely out in time that I'm going to be around because i only got a year to go, but there will be a time in the next 10 years or 15 or 20 years to where we're going to say we have to cut school funding, we have to cut roads because the Medicaid, the growth of the Medicaid is so tremendous. So we're looking forward, we're not saying, I mean, I don't think the fear is in the next and, and you don't know who the next president's going to be. I mean, Biden could sit there and continue to print money and send us $10 billion every year for whatever he wants to do. Mm-hmm. Then you get the next president and says, you know, we're turning the faucet off. Mm-hmm. Now we have, as a state, we got to decide are we going to kick all these people off this program that they got uncomfortable to? Or are we going to fund them ourselves? Mm-hmm. We, we're putting a box. And so to say that we're going to count on the federal government to continue to print money and bail us out, I think is fiscally irresponsible.
1: Well, let's just let's, let's say the worst case scenario happens and the state does have to pay, let's say, $100, $150 million. Um, couldn't you find revenue streams, which is kind of the colloquial word for tax increases? I want to be upfront here that don't really affect ordinary people that much one of the ideas is letting managed care organizations tax themselves that would probably get 50 70 million dollars legalizing marijuana if some of that went there that's probably a few million dollars too i mean if we're going to be talking about like ballot initiatives that should be deconstructed why not take the cap out of the amount of casinos that can be built and use the revenue from that for medicaid like of, of all those things I just mentioned, the only people who would be affected are managed care companies, gamblers, and marijuana smokers. Like, why not just do that and then expand Medicaid that way?
0: Well, I guess yeah, the, the the falsity of that is when you raise taxes, everybody pays for it, mm-hmm. no matter what. Okay, so um, to say that we're only going to tax people that drive red cars is, is a red herring. I mean— that doesn't exist. The people that are driving red cars then are going to pay more money, mm-hmm. and they're going to charge more money to everybody else because they have to pay more to drive their red car. And so now when I go to the grocery store, I'm going to be paying a nickel more for a head of lettuce because the guy that made that head of lettuce is driving a red car. It All this stuff trickles down. There is no, we're only going to tax the rich. That's where the whole, I mean, that's a big argument between conservative and liberal philosophies is they're like, well, tax the rich. They got tons of money. Well, you know what? You tax the rich. They're going to move all their income offshore. They're going to hire less people. Now less people have jobs. It affects everybody anytime you raise taxes. So at that would be, my, I guess, my answer to your proposal. Right.
1: I, and I and I just want to make it clear. I don't smoke marijuana. I don't like casinos, and I'm not part of a managed care company. So I want to just make that clear. But those, those are items that you could get revenue from it has nothing to do with like raising income taxes or putting on sales tax Well, we could expand
0: gaming and have vlt's and do sports book. i mean there's a, you know there's things you can and do i you i understand
1: now. that people yeah. would want to use the revenue for other things besides right. medicaid right. if that happens um so i'll probably have you on next year like when you are kind of going out you're of the legislature the sure. yeah. But, yeah. but do you have any thoughts about what you're going to do next politically or is this the end of the paul wheeland area are you just um, looking to see what next opportunity you may have after 2022
0: well, um, I will tell you a little story that uh, after I got elected, my wife and I had a discussion. And I told her, I said, um, what am I going to do next? Everyone's going to ask me that question. And so she said, well, what are your options? And I said, well, I said, you know, you could always run statewide if I wanted to be ambitious. I said, I could run for Congress if a congressman stepped down or opening appeared. I said, I could run for a local office, you know. I said, there's always a chance the governor could appoint me to some position in government. I said, or I can come home and I can sell insurance with you. And my wife said, "You know, I like the first couple options. The last one, I don't much care for. So I think I'm going to have to find something else to do. I'm just not sure what it's going to be at this time. I think I've I've ruled out the idea. I think of running statewide or going for Congress. So that leaves me with um, possibly running for a local office, mm-hmm. or." Um, if there's some kind of appointment that came along, I would probably have to seriously consider.
1: Well, it, maybe so. you and Jeff Roorda will run against each other for something. You, you
0: never know. We could have the Battle of Co three for, or for something. a quarter right, of yeah. deeds, right? Of something like that. Yeah, you never know what will happen. Yep. Yeah,
1: yeah, right. it'll be interesting to see what happens with congressional redistricting with Jefferson County. Right. I know that's yep. not an, an issue that you have a lot of, of, of like super specific insight on, but Jefferson County is split into three different congressional right. districts yep. now. There may be some ambitious Jefferson County Republican that wants Jeffco to go all, all in one right, district, right. Yeah. or maybe half of Jeffco goes into Mo two, and Mo two becomes a sixty percent Republican district. Right. I think that'll be a fun topic for December when you all have to go into a special yeah. session. But I, th-
0: I think the only thing I will say about redistricting, I think, is kind of interesting. Is ten years ago when I was in the legislature um, on the Republican side, nobody wanted Jefferson County. And that's why they split it into a third. Because everybody was like, we don't want that Democrat county. Now, everybody's like, we want Jefferson (laughs) County to be part of ours. So we went from being unpopular amongst the Republicans to being very popular. So it's kind of interesting what 10 years will do.
1: Well... There's a lot of social, there's a lot of political science that probably could go into why Jeffco went from like a, a blue county to a bright red county. But that's a topic for another yep, day. That sounds and We'll talk good. to you about yep. that next year. All right. Senator, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank yep. you so much. Yep, for all I the, appreciate it. I had a good time. For all of our stories, STLPR.org. Politically speaking, is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri St. Louis. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum and follow the senator. Wheelin now the greatest twitter handle in missouri politics well thank you you're very welcome (laughs) that may be overstating it i do enjoy i do enjoy that twitter handle quite a bit uh thank you very much until next time so long
0: From St. Louis Public Radio, this is Politically Speaking.